Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge, where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. I was a victim of a credit card scam. I went from zero credit card debt to in one week, $35,000 worth of debt. When it comes to money, a lot of people become different people. Tiffany Aliche, financial educator and founder of The Budget Nista. America's favorite financial educator, Tiffany Aliche. Two years ago, my husband passed away suddenly. The thing with life is that it's so fragile. You don't know when the end is, but regret is something that you'll have to deal with forever. What is the first step towards financial wholeness? So first step for financial wholeness is budget. I'm Erica Kohlberg, and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. You probably know that I travel a lot. When I'm on the road and get some me time, I love to explore, but I don't want to see the same old tourist traps. I want an authentic experience. Knowing some of the local language can help you take your vacation to the next level and get an unforgettable experience. But we're all busy, right? So how do we fit this into our schedule? Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is making language learning practical and prepares you for real-life conversations and real-life scenarios. From your very first lesson, you'll learn practical phrases so you can make connections with real people, not just random words. And they make learning possible for every schedule. Lessons are as short as 10 minutes, so you can learn between meetings, classes, and commutes. Since it's all on the Rosetta Stone app, you can take your learning anywhere, even when you're in a foreign country practicing your newly learned conversation skills. And because I'm a Rosetta Stone partner, you can get over 50% off a lifetime subscription. Usually $3.99, you pay just $1.49. Their lifetime subscription means that you never have to pay renewal fees. You can learn multiple languages at your own pace. Start, stop, and review at your convenience. Visit erica.com slash Rosetta Stone. Download the app and immerse yourself in a new language. I'll put the link in the show notes as well. Again, that's erica.com slash Rosetta Stone. Erica with a K. What is the difference between financial freedom versus financial wholeness in your opinion? 
So financial wholeness is a term that I coined when I wrote my first book, Get With Money. And really, I thought to myself, as I was working toward financial freedom for myself, and I've been fortunate enough to do so, that, okay, now I have this kind of pile of money. I don't have to work anymore. But is that realistic for the average person? It felt like not inclusive, you know? And I used to be a school teacher for over 10 years. And when I taught, I taught to the 80%. So 10% of kids, super, super brilliant. 10% of kids are going to struggle with learning. But 80% of kids are just of average intelligence. And I thought, I want to do the same with my financial education, that I want to make sure that what I teach can be reached by the majority of the people who are listening. And so I thought, I don't want to push financial freedom anymore because it might not be realistic for everyone. So what does that mean? You don't have a good life? And so I came up with financial wholeness, which there are 10 components that if you master these 10 components, even if you never get your big pile of money and your millions, that you will still be okay, that you'll be able to pay your bills, you'll be able to look after yourself and your kids and your family, you'll be able to go on vacation, you'll be able to have a good life despite not having that pile of money that happens typically when you, when you reach financial freedom. Is financial wholeness defined as a certain number? Like I'll have enough to be able to retire? Or is financial wholeness a feeling? Or is it a checklist? What is it? So it's basically like a checklist because I think of financial freedom as like a number, right? But financial wholeness is like I've mastered these core components of my financial life and I'm good. You know, I could be a teacher or I can be a CEO or I could be a mechanic or a nurse. So preschool teacher Tiffany when I was a preschool teacher, I was on track to be 100% financially whole, which meant I had bought a condo by then. I'd bought like a two-year-old car. I was on going on vacations during the summer. And I thought, wow, she was still on track to have a really great life because she had mastered the core components of her money. So financial wholeness is a more holistic, inclusive way of achieving your financial goals. Okay, so maybe let's go through these 10 steps then. What is the first step towards financial wholeness? So first step for financial wholeness is budget. You have, it is the foundation for all the things. I know I'm the budgetista, you know, <laughs> but it's true, right? Your budget is like this physical picture of you telling your money what to do. So if you have a budget like in your head and, you, you know, people kind of have a roundabout or they're just kind of like, I kind of know that's not a budget. It has to be maybe a spreadsheet. Maybe you have a notebook. You want to have a physical picture of your money doing what you told it to do. And so in my new book, Made Whole, I show people step-by-step step how to not just create a budget, but how to automate it so you don't have to be so stressed about it. Because that part is so important, you know? I think a lot of people, I don't know like how you feel about budgets, but a lot of people feel that budgeting is like the worst, you know? <laughs> but I like to think of budget as your say-yes plan. Yeah. You know, you're there to be like, budget, can I go on vacation? And budget looks and says, yes, after you save, you know, a budget, you know, can I get that new car? Yes, if you reduce your expenses here. You see, you're, I always think about like your budget as like your mom. You know, you ask your mom like, you know, mom, can I have like dessert? Yes, after dinner. Can I go play? Yes, if you finish your homework. So your mom is there to say yes or no, not even no, really to say yes, but based upon her being able to say yes in a way that keeps you safe and will maintain like the current lifestyle that you currently have. So your budget is there to do the same. It's not there to tell you no. It's there to give you a solid, good, maintainable yes. And so if you focus on your budget first and foremost, it's a great place to start. What else do you think people get wrong when it comes to budgeting? I think that people don't start and they don't automate. 
You know, I mean, not everything can be automated because I know back in the day when I was broke, broke. So there's a difference between broke when it's like I have no money left over at the end of the month and broke, broke is when I have negative left money, money mm-hmm. left over. <laughs> so I've been broke, broke. And so one of so you can't always automate all your bills and things, but there are things you can automate to help you. So ideally, you want to start automating your retirement first and foremost. Hopefully that comes out first. You want to have it your money automatically landing in your account. You want to have your savings automatically like pulled to the side. You know, you want to have your money automatically landing in a separate checking account for bills. And you want to have your bills, if possible, if you have the money, automatically paid. So I was, I think about it like a symphony. Like you're the, who's that guy who stands up in front of the, not the choreographer. I'm not the worst one, but you know, the person who like. Conductor. Conductor. <laughs> so I want you to think of yourself like as a conductor. You're like, this way money to like my retirement account. Yes, yes, a little bit more here to my spending account and a little bit more here to savings. And so you're the conductor and your money's kind of floating to the different accounts. And then ideally, you know, your bills account pays for itself. It, it pays the the bills for you automatically. And then what should be left in this one checking account, ideally, is the money that you have for spending. And that's the only account that I allow my debit card to be attached to because mm. I am a swipe queen. <laughs> you know, I'm like, and I used to like spend my bill money, spend my savings. But if you have all your money kind of separated, I know like I went to see Beyonce. Ow, she was amazing. Um, and so I knew when I bought my tickets, it wasn't bill money. It wasn't retirement. It wasn't savings. It was money that was in my checking account specifically for spending. And so if you do your budget like that, it is your ultimate say yes plan. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. And I think with the automation, even starting small. So I tell people it's really good to have a high-yield savings account because it keeps that money separate from your checking account and it's less tempting to spend. But people say, okay, well, how much do I transfer to my high-yield savings account? I think even if you transfer $5 a month, just the process of learning how to automate that and the mentality of, oh, that $5 is meant for future me. Yes. Therefore, it's going to my high-yield savings account. And that $5 can become $10 or $20 as you start to grow your income. I literally started with $5 because it wasn't about the 5 Because I told myself, if you can be, do 5 one day you'll be able to do 50. Mm-hmm. And then I was at 50. And then I was like, well, if you can do 50, one day it'll be 500. You know? And yeah. so slowly but surely. But I agree. I like to have my money separate, especially like your savings separate from your checking. Because if you're anything like me, like I love Target. <laughs> so when I go to Target, especially when I was broke, not quite broke, 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 broke. I would look at my checking and be like, ooh, I want this cute little Target t-shirt or whatever. And my checking is like, really? Because there's nothing here. And then I would have my savings initially at my current bank. Yep. And my savings were like, we have money. <laughs> <laughs> and so while they were swiping, I was making the transfer on my phone. I know. <laughs> That's the one. I know. You know, but... If your savings is at an online-only, ideally high-yield savings account, a bank, like that's not connected to your regular bank, at least it's not at the the accounts or not at the same bank, you're looking at about a 24, sometimes a 72-hour wait before Mm -hmm. the money lands. So unless you have a sleeping bag, like to wait for your T-shirt, you're not getting it. (laughs) So that's just one of the ways to like 
have your money separate. Yeah. yeah, it's just a barrier. No, I did the exact same thing. When I was a broke law student, my checking and savings were just interchangeable. It's like, I would, <laughs> if you looked at the number of transfers that happened between my checking and yes. savings, but then sometimes I'd have a little too much in my checking by a little too much, meaning like probably $300. So then I'd be like, okay, I can save $100. Yes. But then it comes right back. Right back. I want to buy something. Also, too, you're not supposed to. I think it's like, what is it? The federal government caps you at like six transfers out of your savings account. Yeah, you're not supposed to pull money out of your savings account regularly. They're like, just put it into checking. Because high-key, low-key, the banks use your money that you have in savings to invest so they can make a ton of money and give you a penny. And so if you keep pulling your own money, how can they make money off your money? So they don't allow you to make more in a month, more than six transfers without getting in trouble. So you also want to be mindful of that. So having your money separate is one of the best things you could do for your budget. I love the automation. I love separating it out. What about people who say, well, how much should I be putting into my savings versus my expenses? So inside Made Whole, I walk you through figuring out what do your expenses look like? So I walk you through lining up all your expenses, and then I like to code my expenses. So anything that is a bill, like you'll get in trouble for if you don't pay, I tell people put a B next to it, Mm -hmm. you know? And then anything that's a bill that fluctuates which is like a utility, I say put a U in front of that B. So now you have Bs, you have UBs, and anything else that's not labeled a B or UB, we label those Cs. Those are cash expenses, or I call them your choice expenses. So even though you're not going to necessarily use cash, but these are the places where you have the major choices that, where you can make. So then now you know you're going to add up your Bs and your UBs, and you know that's what needs to go into my checking account for bills every single month, because I like to have a separate checking account just for bills. Mm. And anything that's labeled C's, then you know that some of these can go into your checking account for spending. Now, if you're not saving anything, you can reduce some of your expenses in your C's first, and then that's what you allocate to your savings account. So I like to work backwards to see where are you. So you might honestly find that you're negative and there's no money to be to be saved and that's okay. And so then I teach in the book like for a ways for you to to make more money because you can't budget your way to like everything. You know, I'm the budgetista, but even I'm like, sometimes it's a matter of like, do I spend too much or do I not make enough? How do you know the difference? How do you figure out? So when you do that coding system, if you add up all your Bs and UBs, your bills basically, and it's way, way, way more than any of your Cs, then you probably have a don't make enough. Because basically, you're like, all your expenses are bills. You're not getting your nails done. You're not getting your hair done. You're not going out. It's like, we're here now. You know, like, all my money is going to the things I must pay for. Mm -hmm. And so if you have way more Cs, you know, and like, you know, your bills are 25% of your your income is going toward bills, and you have a ton of Cs, you're probably just spending too much. Because you have a lot of expenses that are really basically your choice. Going out grooming things, um, you know, like entertainment. And so things like that, you're like, okay, I do make enough. I'm just spending too much. And so some people are kind of in the middle, you know, but most people kind of lean heavily one way or the other. Like they either spend too much or they're not making enough. And the problem is, is the spend too much people, if you tell them, you know, your budget needs to be fixed, they'll just say, I'll make more. It's like, that's not the issue. You need to spend less, you know? Mm -hmm. And then don't make enough people, they're like, I'll just cut back. And like, that's actually not the issue. You've already cut back as much as possible. At this point, you have to make more. So identifying who you are, that way the don't make enough people, can you ask for a raise at work? 
I show people like how to ask for a raise, giving them a script, as well as giving them a, a like um there's this thing you can create, like call a go me file. Go me. So anytime you do something for your company where you make the money or you save the money, you write it down like go me, mm, made them a thousand dollars. Save them 2000 So at the end of the year, when you have your review, you're not really asking for a raise. You're kind of asking for like a correction of salary, you know? And then for those people who spend too much, I show you how to go line by line and reduce some of those expenses so you can put more money into savings and investing. I love the concept of a go-me file. I always did it at work where every month I would just write down all of my accomplishments. And the more detailed you can be, the better. So if I brought this many clients or this many, I don't know, Whatever it was, it was just helpful for me to remember at the end of the year. When also, too, it's helpful for when you sit with, sit with your supervisor, your manager, because they're not going to remember everything. And I find especially women, you know, a guy's like, so I drank water on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> As a result, the whole office is drinking water. It's like, hey, not quite, Jeremy, but okay. You know, women are like, oh, yeah, I saved the company from annihilation. But, you know, it's kind of a team effort. It's like, sis, it was you. So especially women, you know, create that goal me file. So that way you can remember the good things that you've done and quantify it as much as possible. You know, but let's just say you did something like, I don't know, you took someone's shift. You know, it might be hard to quantify how much you saved or made, but you know that's like, you know, the company was able to stay open. Like, let's just say you are a barista at a bakery. Mm-hmm. And because you took someone's shift, because they were sick or whatever— they were able to stay open that day and therefore make additional income. So just keep those things in mind that you bring value, quantify that value as much as possible. So if you ask for a raise, now asking for, because I have a company, obviously, right at the budgetista, like asking for a raise doesn't mean you're automatically going to get it because like this was a this was a tight year for us at budgetista and I had employees ask for raises and I would have loved to, but the budget just wasn't there. And so you have a choice. If you think your company is not giving you a raise because they don't see your value, you can leave. And if you think like, you know what, they really just don't have the money, then you can say we can revisit like as things do better. Like we're really like I'm really transparent at the Budgetista. We share our numbers every two weeks in like a, a Slack channel so everyone sees the numbers. And it's like as we do better, then I can do better by you. So, mm. so just know what kind of company you're navigating with. Like, you know, I don't want to work here. I don't feel valued. So then you're free to go and find someplace else that will pay you more. Yeah. What about if people try to get a raise, are unsuccessful? What other tips do you have for them increasing their income? So there are a couple of things you can do. You can, one, find another job, you know, get that LinkedIn dusted off and ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, two, you might want to do, like, when I was teaching, I used to tutor and babysit on the side. It was, like, the best because a lot of the my students, you know, I could just tutor them or babysit them. And it was easier for me to make more money. So one of my rules for side hustling is pick a side hustle that you either have, like, a degree or certification in because you can get paid more money. Yep. Or pick something that you're currently kind of doing at work that's adjacent, because that way you don't have to learn a new skill set. You know what I mean? Like, let's just say I was like the maintenance man of a building. I might do handiwork on the side, because who wants to learn a new skill set? You're going to start decorating cakes as a maintenance man, you know? <laughs> I mean, you can, but it doesn't, you know, it, yeah. it means you have to learn a new skill set. Who wants to do that? So make more because you have an education in it. And don't be afraid to if it has to make sense, to invest a little bit of money to make it make sense. Like, so for example, let's just say that you're a pretty good photographer and you've been doing like, I don't know, your your friends' birthday parties and things like that. 
you know, if you want to take like a photography class, you know, like they have these online courses, you want to spend a hundred bucks to get a little better. It might be worth it because, you know, you invest that money and then you're going to see a direct return on investment. So Mm. if it makes sense, you know, you have to run the numbers and, and remember that like the purpose of the side hustle is to make you money. So run the numbers. Like, does it make sense? Like, you know, if you're Ubering and maybe your city is already inundated by Ubers, you know, and you realize I'm not going to make any money here. It doesn't make sense. I had a friend who was going to get a whole new car so they could Uber. I was like, so you're going to get a car note because his car's paid off. Oh. You're going to get a whole new car note so you can make money via Uber. When will you actually see the benefit? No. Make the math math work. You know? <laughs> the math is not mathing. So just make sure that the math is mathing before you invest any kind of money in a side hustle. Yeah. I like that. The math is better. <laughs> this is a little off track, but we have to take it back because I realize we've been friends for a good year, but I don't think I know how you went from preschool teacher to the budget nista. Oh, really? How did that happen? Well, so my dad was a CFO of a small nonprofit and an accountant. And at home, we just learned about money all the time. Growing up? Yes. Oh, that's nice. Mm -hmm. So my parents are both Nigerian, and Nigerians are known for their their financial acumen. (laughs) So we talked about, so every Thursday, we would have like a family meeting. There's five girls in my family. I'm I'm number two. And so we would talk about grades, um, which Nigerians are very important. Japanese too. I mean, you know, (laughs) there's it's like, and I remember, so the joke is like, um, a C is a D, this is what my dad would say, a B is a C, and the A is you better have. <laughs> you don't get like, oh, you got all A's. They're like, yeah, I don't care. You're supposed to get all A's. <laughs> or if I got like a 98 and I'd be happy, my dad said, well, what happened to the other two points? I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so it was just a, like, you know, there's this sense of like excellence in education above all else. But also too, financial, I guess because, you know, he was in the financial space. So we would talk about saving I remember getting my first little job, summer job, when I was 14. And I didn't know he was going to, like, ask to see what I did with my paycheck. So, of course, I cashed it and tricked it up on candy. <laughs> and, like, and so I'm just living the, my best, you know, <laughs> Snickers and, and Twix life. And then he, he was like, you know, he called me into the dining room. He's like, okay, you know, you got paid last week. And I was like, yeah. He was like, bring me your bank statement. And, you know, what'd you do with it? And I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> And he was like, what'd you do with your money? Because it was all spent. Because, you know, maybe like 150 bucks or whatever, but still on like just foolishness. And I was like, I don't know. He was like, you better find out. Oh, my God. I remember begging my sister like to give me some of her receipts. So we had to like line up our receipts and and explain. He's like, I'm never going to take your money. It's your decision, but you should be able to stand by like the way you spend it. And I'm like, Twix? (laughs) (laughs) Snickers? So I learned very quickly that I was going to have to like defend my spending choices. And so it, that taught me, you know, like initially like, oh, I don't want to get in trouble. So let me only spend $10 on candy and put the rest in the bank. So that kind of, those kind of conversations came up regularly. As a result of that, I became the go-to money person for all my friends. In college, I was like the the person that everyone asked financial advice of. And I would ask like my dad, like he, he, at first it was like they would ask me, I would ask him. And after a while, I'm like, this is really interesting. So I started taking financial courses. It really was just for fun. I went to school for business, hated my internships, decided I wanted to be a teacher. And then um, while I was teaching, I ended up teaching the parents on the side how to budget, how to do their own. My dad taught me when I was a teenager how to do my own taxes. And so where I worked was really economically challenged. And so the parents would come in and say like, oh, I went to whatever tax preparer. They charged me three, $400. I'm like, what? 
No, come in at nap time. I'll show you how to do your own taxes, you know? Or like, come in at nap time. I'll show you how to budget. You're, you're using a check cashing place. Come in at nap time and I'll take you to the bank. And so if you get direct deposit, you don't have to worry about that fee. And I just thought it would be something I would do for fun, teaching financial education on the side. And then the recession happened. And... My friends were losing their job, and I was like, sucks to be you, because teachers don't lose their job until I did. <laughs> I know. Really? Yes. Suddenly, too. So I had the summer off, because teachers didn't get the summer Who's gonna off. Who's going to teach those preschoolers? I know. And so, because it was a nonprofit-based school, mm. and so we didn't get funding for the year. So three days before the new school year. Sometimes schools will hold some of your money so you can live off of it in the summer. My school didn't. You had to have the discipline that when you got paid to put some of it up to see yourself through the summer. So I was down to like my last little bit of money. It just was the worst because I was like, wait, what? Yeah, so it was like three days before the new school year and I had just bought a condo a couple of years prior. I was 29 when my school closed and I bought a condo when I was 26. So I thought I was so grown. And um, I just finished my master's at 25, so I had $52,000 student loan debt. And then at 26, 27, I was a victim of a credit card scam. That they found me like, they're like, girl, that's your business. It left me $35,000 in debt. What? Yeah. This guy who's supposed to be a friend of mine, he's in jail now. So, hey, JL. Um, <laughs> but yeah, because he didn't he just stole get... your credit card and went Well, to no. He, I didn't know. I was just so dumb. I was 23 or 24 and he told me that, I told him I want to learn how to invest. But I wanted to do it on my own. I didn't want to ask my dad. Of course. Why should I not ask somebody who has their master's in economics? Not my dad. You know? So I asked my friend who I thought was rich. He lived and in, in, in the city, and he was driving, like, a Lamborghini. I didn't know at the time that, like, you could have those things and not actually have money. You know, so he was just a scammer. I didn't know that. And so he was like, oh, I'll show you how to invest. You have to pull money. You have to—what did he ask me? Did I have, like, ten dollars or $15,000 to invest? I was like, no. He's like, you know you can pull money off a credit card. I was like, really? I didn't know that. I pulled off—you know, so it's—what are those things called when you pull money off a credit card? Um— Advances? Yes. So I got an advance, which, you know, the interest rate on those are like, just give your left pinky. But I didn't know. So I pulled the money. It was such a red flag. I remember, I must have looked like such a baby. I went to the bank to like pull money out. And they like kept me there for like an hour. They're like, are you okay? I mean, you would have thought I was like. Because there's so many scams around this. And they're like, is someone, is someone like, I was like, no, I'm fine. I'm just dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Pulled the money out. He quickly disappeared. And I didn't know because he told me that, like, the investment that we're going to invest in was going to yield, which sounds so dumb now, $2,000 a week for two years. And I was like, ooh, I'm about to be rich. Oh, no. Before that, I didn't have any credit cards. And so I started to use my credit card because I was like, well, I'm going to be rich. So I might as well just start using it. So I ran it up like another I bought, like, a course, one of these online courses for, like, $10,000 to teach me how to, like, be even richer. Because I just wanted, I wanted, like, in my mind, I wanted to retire my parents because they'd worked so hard. You know, they had immigrated, you know, from Nigeria here. They'd send us all to college. We're all college educated. Half of us have our master's. And I was like, they get, they deserve to rest. And I said, well, this will enable me to, like, take care of them. So within, like, I went from zero credit card debt to in one week $35,000 worth of debt. But I was like, I wasn't even worried about that. I was like, well, duh, I'm about to get my $2,000 a week. So I called him. It was like, do, 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 do. It was like. Oh, my gosh. I was so frantic. It took me months to realize that he was basically gone. And I was like, what do I do? 
what do I do? And did I you like, have any contact with him after that? Or? No. Well, he used to. Or did he say like, oh, it's coming yes, soon. Your investments are doing very well. Yes. Okay. That's very common. That's is like it? a very common scam. Yeah. I have friends that have fallen for that okay. too. Where they say, oh, you're not able to pull out your investments yet because they're doing mm-hmm. so well. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This time of year can feel like a lot. The pressure and expectations around the holiday season and the added stress can all add up. And it's natural to feel anxious or even sad. You could also be feeling things a little more at this time of year due to personal loss. The grief can be overwhelming around the holidays and you miss the special people even more than usual. I found that therapy can help. Just talking things through can help me manage everything that's going on. With BetterHelp, you can learn positive coping skills and be the very best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and specifically designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can also switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find the bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com ETM today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash etm for erica taught me i'll also put the link in the show notes and i just was like i just i rather i remember i think to myself i rather he just took the money and ran because it got my hopes up for so long i'm like okay okay mm. and he's like you didn't get it i sent it and i'd be looking like oh we'll send it again i know it was oh. <sighs> how's jail so <laughs> so it took months of him doing that cat and mouse and even asking for more money yeah. He's like, it's doing, you know, Tiffany is doing so well, but if you did this, and I, I, like a dummy, I almost considered it. I was like, Tiffany, no. But I wasn't as worried. Once I realized he wasn't going to pay me back, and I figured, okay, that's okay, because the school year's about to start, and you're a really good saver. You'll start to pay it back yourself, and then fight him, like, you know, fight for it later. And then three days before the new school year, so we're closing. And I was like, no, I've got this credit card debt. I got the student loan debt, and I bought that condo for two twenty. I was like $300,000 in debt and no income and no savings because I'd lived off it for the summer. And I was like, what am I, I going to do? I called my oldest sister, Karen, and I was like, what should I do? <laughs> and she was like, well, what's the worst case scenario? I was like, they're going to take the condo. And she's like, well, what do you do then? I was like, I guess I can move back home with my mommy and daddy. I was like, but I don't want to tell them what I did. <laughs> and she's like, well, why wait? Why not move home now? And just, you know, like, get yourself together. And so, like, I told my mom, like, I had lo- she knew, my dad, they, they knew I lost my job. Mm-hmm. I didn't tell them the other stuff. So I told my mom, like, I, I think I should move back home. And she was like, yay! Because, you know, moms. <laughs> of and course. so, like, I slowly, but, like, I, put, I brought a lamp. And my dad's like, what's that? I'm like, nothing. And then, like, I brought, like, you know, a painting. And then my mattress. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, do you live here now? And I was like, temporarily. <laughs> And it was the worst because I'm sure your parents are hyper strict. My parents were, I mean, I love them. It wasn't the worst because I'm grateful because everybody cannot move back home at a safe space. But like my baby sister, Lisa, is nine years younger than me. So she was still, I want to say she was either early 20s or like late teens. So she had like curfew and all that stuff. My dad's like, you're the same. And I was like, but. And you're 29. Yeah. And I was like, no, but he was like, you live here, right? I was like, yes. He said, you're a child, right? I'm like, I'm not a child. He said, then be an adult. I was like, okay, I'm a child. He was like, when Lisa gets home, you get home. I was like, oh my God. I spent my 30th birthday in my middle school bed, like looking up at the ceiling, thinking, I'm such a loser. I know, I felt so. 
But it was then when the recession really started to play out, I realized all my friends were really struggling. And even though I was struggling, like I was still really good at budgeting and creating a plan. and create. So I was doing that thinking like I was having such a hard time, but not in comparison to, you know, my friends. And so they started to come to me and say, can you show me your budgeting system? And then friends of friends. And before I knew it, strangers were asking. And then my best friend at the time was like, maybe she turns into a business. I'm like, a budgeting business? Who's gonna Who's gonna buy that? You know. But she was like, "Do you have money?" I'm like, "No." She's like, "I'm like, okay." <laughs> so I started off charging fifty bucks to do your budget, but then I would sit down and people would be negative. I'm like, "There's no fifty bucks here." And after like helping like about maybe I want to say fifty to sixty women, especially because I didn't was scared to like go to like a guy's house to help them with their budget, and all of them crying because they were all in the negative, and I never took any money because I was like. There's no money here. I thought there's got to be a better business model. I reached out to the United Way in my in my town where I lived. I actually reached out to a bunch of nonprofits to say, do you need anyone to teach financial education? Because I'd already volunteered with them. And the United Way was like, yeah, do you have a curriculum? I was like, yeah. <laughs> and then you go home and write it. Literally, I was like, because I mean, I had, by then I was a teacher. I had my master's in education. And so I was like, I can write a curriculum. And so I wrote it, and for like two, maybe three years, I taught twice a week, and they paid me, it was pretty good money. I mean, relatively speaking, it was like $3,000 a month. So that was like, it was like, okay, and I was able to finally get my own little place again, like rent my own little place, and then social media started to blow up. Yeah, and so like, so it just really started to take off, and it's been like 15 years, you know, and over $50 million in business. Really, the the last, I want to say five or six years, that's what really— Start to do what I know just from this little like business. I have an online school, the Literature Academy. You know, I wrote Geek It With Money. It was a New York Times bestseller, now made whole. You know, my new book. I was the first black woman on the cover of Money Magazine, which is crazy. I know. And NAACP award nominee. And I wrote a law for my state in New Jersey making financial education mandatory for middle school students. So it's been like a crazy ride. I had the Netflix special. You were so inspiring. It was such a crazy ride. I mean, I was supposed to just be a preschool teacher. Well, not supposed to. I guess I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. But, you know, initially I was like, I love teaching preschool. It's fun times. So that was going to be my life. I think sometimes things happen and people think, oh, my gosh, what was me? And I get it because I've been there, obviously. But you start to realize that it was this thing I needed to, like, this trajectory. You know, I've helped over 2 million women. I've had women... I, I've lost count now, but I remember the first time it happened, a woman wrote me, wrote me on um, Facebook to say, I am currently in a shelter. She was what they call the working poor. When you actually have a job, but it's not paying you enough to take care of yourself. Five years later, she sent me a message on Facebook and I saw the message above, you know, like about, I'm in, you know, I'm in a shelter. What do I do? And she's like, I have some exciting news. You know, can I call you? I didn't know her, but I'm always like, one to be like, here's my number. <laughs> <laughs> and so she was like, I just closed on a home. I was like, wait, what? She was like, I just want to thank you so much. I was like, what did I say? And she was like, honestly, the challenge was like the beginning of my financial foundation. And I started working and and making more and then budgeting and then saving. And then I was like, and but now I've lost count of how many people have called me or wrote me to say they've gone from homeless to homeowner. And I'm like, that to me is what I do all this for. And this now you see why it was important for me to steer away from teaching financial freedom. Mm-hmm. Because that woman is not likely to make a million, two million dollars and not have to, you know what I mean? Yeah. So then what, what, what happens to her? 
is she not allowed to have like an amazing life? She is. And so to me, financial wholeness, these 10 components, which are budgeting, like, do you have a budget? Is it automated? You know, savings, do you have a savings plan? Credit, do you have at least a 740 or better when it comes to your FICO score? Because that's the beginning of perfect credit. Debt, do you have a debt pay down plan? You don't have to be debt free, but you should have like a plan in place to work toward debt freedom and learning to earn. Do you know how to make money in your job, but also on the side if you need to? And then the second half of financial wholeness is investing for both retirement and wealth. You know, retirement first, because retirement is the foundation of you don't have to work forever and ever and ever, ideally, because if you set aside for retirement, that can be the, you get to basically maintain your current lifestyle. And wealth means you get to improve your lifestyle now and then leave a legacy. So that's the the sixth one. And then seven is insurance, right? I think a lot of people don't think to themselves, insurance is to kind of protect the things that you've you've developed and grown. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, do you have insurance for your, for your pet? I had a friend, her cat was really sick and she was debating because it was a $5,000 bill. And she was like, I wish I would have known I would have had pet insurance, renter's insurance, homeowner's insurance, life insurance, you know, like to protect your assets. Number eight is, do you have a financial team? You know, not everyone needs, like, I have a CFO, I've got a money manager, I've got a certified financial planner. You know, everyone doesn't need all that, just the position I'm in. But do you maybe have an accountant? That makes sense. Do you have um, an uh, an estate planning attorney that you've used? To me, personal finances is a team sport, mm-hmm. you know? And so whatever that looks like for you, finding your financial team and an inmate whole, I walk you through deciding who should be on your team based upon where you are. Then nine is net worth. Like, is your net worth more, well, do you own more than you owe? That's your net worth. So if you owe $100,000, but you own $200,000, okay, you have a net worth of $100,000. Like, there are people who are like, well, you know, I own a million. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, but then you owe 10, you're down bad mm-hmm. by 9 million. You know what I mean? And so, like, your net worth is critical. Your net worth is the number, kind of like your financial health overall, you know? And then last but not least, estate planning. Like, do you have a will? If that, if you have a child, you need to have a will. You know, it's not even about, like, assets as much as it is when you have a child. Who is going to be the caretaker if something happens to you and your partner? But if you have a net worth of over, say, $500,000, which sounds like a lot on paper, but just own a house, you know, then you really should consider a trust. Because when something happens to you, you know, depending on where you live, you know, one, you're going to be subject to probate, which is like basically, you know, they're going to bust wide open your business and tell everybody how much you have. And then also, too, you still have to pay taxes even if you have a, a trust, but it will help to circumvent certain taxes because if you, like even now I just finished my trust and I'm moving my assets into it. And then the beneficiaries of my trust are my parents and my sisters. So the transfer has already happened. So if something happens to me, it's not like they're not inheriting these assets. It's like the trust has already, it's already been done, yeah. you know? And so, yeah, because to me, personal finance is really personal. Like, as you know, like two years ago, my husband passed away suddenly. He had um, an aneurysm and he was only 41. And so the, that's why I didn't do the podcast, you know, last time when you asked me, but I'm so glad I got to meet you. And so it really drove home to me why all this is so important, you know? It's not so much for the money, but the peace of mind. You know, because I had done all of this, I get to just miss him and not struggle financially. You know what I mean? Like, so candidly, when I met him, 
I was a preschool teacher. And then we started dating and I started this business and it started to do well. But he never made over $60,000 a year. You know, he worked for the city of Newark where we lived and he was a super. And so, but even before we started dating seriously, he, like when he passed away, he left a, a good amount of money for, I have a bonus daughter, so she doesn't have to worry about college. You know, like he left a good amount of money left over for um, us to via his his pension. And he had an insurance policy externally. And he also had an insurance policy through his job. And I remember distinctly hearing him talk to his friends, like, you need to get an insurance policy. You know, that wasn't for me, you know? And so when I think of financial wholeness, I think of like him, here is this regular guy making 60000 and it's not here suddenly. And Alyssa was 15 when he passed away. And he was, he's still able to provide for her, even though he's not here. You know, and so that's what financial wholeness allows you to do, that it's not that you're going to be a millionaire, but it doesn't mean that you still can't have a solid financial foundation to make sure that you and the people that you care about are okay. And to me, I think that is my mission. Like, I love going somewhere and someone stops me and like gives me a big hug or starts to cry. And it's always like my credit as a result of you, my budget. I was able to buy something for my kid. You know, I'm not so afraid anymore. Or I love hearing people say now that financial wholeness has become more normalized um, for my audience. That like, I'm 20% financially whole, but I'm close to 40%. Or like, Tiffany, because of you, I'm now 90% whole. I only have this one last thing to do. Because wow. people are like, what do I do? You know, like, I want to be okay, but what do I do? And, and Made Whole walks you through step by step. This is what you do. Is each of the 10 sections worth 10%? Yes. So 90% means you've done 9 out of 10? Yes, 9 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Nice. So even me, I was 90% up until a few weeks ago when I finished my trust because it took like a year to map out all the ways. Like people ask the difference between a will and a trust. Think about a will like as soon as you pass away, a will says this is what happens to your assets within like six months, you know? But a trust lets you reach deep into the future. Like for example, in my trust, I'm like if something happens to me, this is how I want the, um, I've left funds for my nieces and my nephews. What do you think that parents should be doing now to teach their kids about money? Do you think they should go through the 10 steps? Well, if you've got really, really, really little ones, I don't think people realize how, like, I want to say really little under the age of like five or six. Start with something basic, like what actually is money? Because I don't think you realize that your kids think you're just going to the store picking up things. You know, they're not fully aware that you're exchanging money for things. And the only way they're going to learn that is if you do that with them. So that's a great way to start is to introduce them that there's an exchange that happens with money. And then I want to say when they get a little older, you know, I don't know if you if you believe in an, um, in allowance, that's a time you can start to introduce, you know, allowance to older children. But certainly you can start introducing savings to them. And then as they get a little bit older, typically kids can start working around 14, 15, 16. You know, and that's when you could do like what my dad did with me, which is when they get paid, map out a plan for what they want to do with their money when they get paid. But include that savings giving spending. It's still the same, you know. And then typically, I I think I want to say at 16, you can open up like a joint checking account for them and having regular conversations with them. You know, align what's important to you, the bills and things to what's important to them. Like, do you want to go on vacation? If you want to go on vacation, then we have to change this thing in the house. Lower the electric bill. You know, save by, like, turning off, like, taking shorter showers, whatever that is. Because no kid is ever going to care about your bills. But if you align it to what's important to them, 
like it's not the electric bill, it's vacation or it's, you know, getting my nails done or whatever that kind of looks like. And so when you do that, then you you grow these kind of like financially savvy kids. Not that like I made all the mistakes still after I left my parents' house, but I was able to fall back on the knowledge that I was taught, you mm-hmm. know? And so I just think that I could not be, I know 100% that I could not be here without those lessons. And I'd be remiss to say that my mom, because, you know, women take on the largest burden of like caring for kids oftentimes in heterosexual relationships, she did, so my dad was like very the textbook, this is how you budget, this is how you invest, this is how you save. And my mom was very much like, when we go grocery shopping, watch how I navigate. When we're like buying clothes for five girls, this is how I negotiate. When we're getting your hair done, I have to, you know what I mean? So she was showing us like in the real world, this is the application of the lessons your dad is teaching you. Mm. So that was invaluable. Like she is like, like if when the first time I bought a car, I didn't call my dad when I was like at the dealership and I called my mom. Because she is a master negotiator, you know? You and so, meet your parents. That's not <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I mean, they were really strict. I'm not going to lie. As a kid, I was like, why? Why me? <laughs> not so much my mom, but oh my gosh. My dad was like a iron fit. I didn't understand then that he was just really looking to keep us safe. Mm. You know what I mean? I think he was really scared having five girls. Like, what can happen? You know? And so, but also that's why I remember distinctly one day he was teaching me some money lesson. And he could tell I was like, I don't care. He's like, you have to listen, Tiffany. He said, because one day you might decide to get married. And if you do, I want you to make a decision because you want to, not because you need someone to take care of you. I remember like distinctly, I was like, because my dad was not Mr. Enlightened. And I was really surprised that he said that. He's like, I never want you to stay anywhere because you have to. And so it like made me realize like, oh, personal finances is not just about like having this big bank account. It gives you choices, yeah. you know? And independence and yeah. not having to rely on someone. Yeah. Hey, it's Erica. I hope you're enjoying today's episode. Like Tiffany, I know just how important insurance can be. If the worst should happen to you, a good life insurance policy means that you can continue to take care of your loved ones, especially if they rely on your income and don't have savings of their own. But where do you start and how do you figure out what level of coverage you need? The best place to start is by considering the needs of the people who rely on you, perhaps your spouse or your children. From there, I recommend getting several quotes to find the best policy that covers your needs. You could use a free service like Policy Genius. At first, you'll provide basic information to get preliminary quotes, and then you'll complete a more detailed application from your chosen insurer to get your final rate. To help out, we've written an article about life insurance for you to learn all the details that you need to know. The link for that is erica.com slash life insurance. Altogether, it's E-R-I-K-A dot com slash life insurance. I'll also go ahead and put the link in the show notes. Now back to the episode. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between six to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. 
To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. So people ask all the time, like, um, there's these big debates online about should a woman date a man that makes less than her? It's like these big, like, debates, you know? And somebody asked me, like, you know, what did I think? And I said, well, I, like, I... Obviously, I was with my husband. When I met him, though, we were, like, making the same, nothing. So we kind of grew up together. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that he's not here and if I decide to, like, partner again, my rule has always been, even in dating, and has always been that whoever my partner is or whoever I'm dating, um, you should have enough money to take care of yourself and your responsibilities. Because if I can mm-hmm. take care of myself and you can take care of yourself, then together we lighten the load, you know? And so, like, that's really, like, my rule of thumb. What do you think of for— when one partner stays at home to raise kids, how can they ensure that they have a level of independence and are not reliant on the other partner financially necessarily? That can be really scary. I think that's like my worst nightmare. I'm finally, not raising kids at home, but like ah, being financially reliant. So I'll say this, that there has to be money set aside for that person as well, because what if the person decides to make a different choice? You know, you might have the most amazing partnership or whatever, and then it falls apart. And then you see... The partner that made more, like, this is my money. It's like, yeah, but I was taking care of home and, and children, and it's not fair to act like I didn't contribute to this. And so I think, especially in the beginning, having the financial conversation and having money set aside for that person, you know, not yeah. money for the house, but, like, set aside. I believe that every couple—well, this is what Jarell and I did, is that we each had our own checking account for spending— and then we had our joint account, account, checking account for bills. So we paid the home house bills together by contributing. Mm-hmm. We each had our own savings account for whatever we wanted to save for. And then we had a joint savings account for whatever we were saving for collectively. And then we each had our own investment account for our goals and then a joint investment account. I still think, even though we both worked, the same should be true. If you're not working that way, if something does happen, it's like, okay, you know, that I'm not left out here with no way to support myself. You know, I know. It's, I think I agree, a hundred percent. You know what I mean? Because it's unconscionable to. It's one thing you want to leave your partner okay, but if this is the parent of your child, and your child presumably will also be living with them, it's not fair to act as if they did not contribute in some way. Yeah. You know, to like your ability to go out and work. You know, and so, but you have to set that up sooner rather than later, especially when things are good. Yes. You know, like have those conversations early, even if they seem hard. Yes, especially if they seem hard. You know, you want to start to practice with the lighter conversations about money, like vacation, things that are fun, you know, or like that's how Gerald and I started our conversations with vacation talk. And then we were like, oh, he was like, I want to buy a car. So then we had those conversations and then we wanted to purchase a home. And so the conversations became more complex and then then it became easier. And if you're not sure how to have those conversations, consider hiring a certified financial planner to help facilitate. Mm. So once I got into a certain space where I knew I could earn a lot and I knew I could save a lot, but I had never had this level of wealth before. So I was like, I don't know what to do now. And at one point I had almost a million dollars in savings account because I was so scared. Oh my gosh. I knew how to basic invest. You know, like I knew I, I had some ETFs, I had some mutual funds, you know, I had some stocks, but I was really scared to like full flip. And I'm like, what do I do? And so I just remember being like looking at the account like this is the most foolish thing. I knew better because I'm like, girl, this is protected up to 250 If something happens to this bank, it's a wrap. So I just remember thinking, I think it's time to ask for help. 
So I interviewed a bunch of financial planners, found this awesome woman, Anjali, who's been my financial planner for the last maybe five years. And so not only did she help with like, what does it look like now? You know, I'm fully invested. I own a couple of properties. I feel great. But she also helped with the conversations with Drell and I when we're trying to make these kind of decisions, you know, about like, well, he wants to do this and I think we should do this. What do you think based upon, you know, what our goals are and what our finances look like? So that helped a lot. Um, Not everyone needs a financial advisor, but like if you do interview one, how do you pay? You know, what are the best ways to pay? And make sure it's not a percentage of what mm-hmm. oh, That's like the worst. You need to pay yes. flat fee yes. only. Yes. Because if you're paying a percentage to your financial advisor, their incentives are all wrong. Of course, they're yes. going to want you to invest in things where they also get an extra kickback. Mm-hmm. Plus, it really hurts you in the long term. Yes. You're paying way more than you think. People think, oh, it's only 1%. I'm like, you don't know how that adds up. Oh, yeah. Yes. So I tell people, like, you can actually find one that you can work with hourly. You know, if you don't want to, you don't have to, I mean, I pay annually for, and then I pay monthly for that annual amount, but you can find people who are like $150 an hour. So maybe you get two hours and you do that twice a year. Yeah. You know? I think that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. If, if you're at the stage where you feel like you need a financial advisor, just find one that you connect with for mm-hmm. two hours yes. um, every few months. Yes. Like I said, you should not be making financial choices by yourself because you can, but Without some team in place, you will make choices that you're like, especially as you get older, you start to make a little more, ideally. You're going to make choices, and there's a learning curve. And so you can mm-hmm. offset the loss, you know? I like that in some ways. The only thing I don't like about that is I feel like my whole life, and even in my 20s, I was thinking that, oh, I can't handle my finances because there's got to be someone smarter and more knowledgeable than me to handle it. I don't necessarily like that mentality. Okay. I feel like financial advisors want you to think they're the know-alls who— Well, like, the wrong ones. Yeah. You know? So I, what I like about Anjali that it's very much a team effort, you know? So I keep, like, a notebook whenever I talk to her. And she is there to do the thing that I'm wanting. So I'm like, I want this amount of money— by this age, um, I want to make sure Alyssa is taken care of. I want to, so I, this is the things I want to do. And then I'm like, well, how, what's the best plan of action do you think to get here? Because this is what I'm thinking. Mm. And we could do this, 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 and this. What are you thinking? And she'll say, well, that, yes, here's why we could do that. Not that your financial advisor is smarter than you and it's going to be like, no, do this, do this, do this. That they are there to help you walk through the goals and things that you say for you want for yourself. But ultimately the decision is yours and they're there to like just sit and support the decision that you make. Yeah. You know? And so, but to your point, yes, you don't want to have this space of thinking that you can't do those things yourself. To me, one of the number one things you want to look from a financial advisor is that you can ask a ton of questions and they're not annoyed. They don't act like you're foolish or, you know what I mean? Like yep. I should be able to, you know, it's like going to my doctor. Like, you know, I want to be, be able to ask a ton of questions so I can make the best decision. Because ultimately, your doctor could say, you should get knee surgery. And you're like, I'm not going to get it. There's nothing they can do. You know, they're there to advise based upon what they know. And you're like, well, okay, you know, thank you for all that. But I've just decided I'm going to do rehabilitation instead. Mm-hmm. You know, but to your point, yes, you want to make sure that you're not, because that's what I did before with, you know, Mr. Jailbird, is that I was like, oh, he knows everything. Here's my money. $35,000 in debt. So I told myself never again 
what I fully entrust, yeah. you know, everything. So, yes. But I think there's a balance that, that can be had with that. I agree. Yeah. And I like what you're saying. There's always the financially optimal decision, and then there's the decision that is optimal for you. And a lot of times those are different decisions. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. To me, the key is that when you think about money, is one of the tools you can use to design the life you want. But it's really important that you design your life first. Like, how do you want to live? Where do you want to live? Do you want to have children? Do you want to be partnered? Those types of things. What do you want to do? Like, how do you want to feel? And then, then you ask yourself, how much money do you need to make that life happen? If you do it the opposite way and say, I need to make this amount of money, then and then design the life to the money, you likely don't need as much as you think. Because the life that I'm living now, I thought that I would need to make, you know, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands, you know, of dollars a year. But I have positioned myself in a way that I'm like, oh, you know, like when I look at my bills, like outside of like sending money to my parents and things like that, my because of the way I've been able to pay things down and and not accumulate any more debt, that my life is a lot less expensive than I would have assumed, you know? Mm. So what that allows me, though, is I'm always asking myself, Tiffany, how do you want life to go? Because as I kind of wind down, you know, eventually, I'm not going to want to do this forever. I know, okay, well— you really just have to have this level of income coming in, you know, like 150000 is probably more. I spend less than $100,000 a year now. So let's just say you have 200000 you know, coming in. So do you really need $50 million put up? No. You know, maybe five. I mean, I know these numbers sound crazy, but it helps you to decide, you know, maybe I need $40,000 a year. So that's going to look like this. You know, I've seen people do this. Like I have an older friend of mine, Miss Rahima, she helped to furnish my home with, like, a lot of her beautiful, like, antiques and things. And what I love about Miss Rahima is she had this beautiful store. And it was kind of like, does she even make any money here? But she's like, whatever. Because she had designed the life that she wanted, which is I love to collect beautiful things, keep some of them, and the other ones I sell. And I can make a lot of money sometimes, sometimes none. But I have positioned my life in a way that I don't need to make as much, mm. you know, to support my lifestyle. So I get to do this from a place of joy, you know, and that's what I'm wanting. Like, what is your little boutique, you know, that you're just like, I don't really need to make money here. If I do, that's great. But if I don't, I still have other ways that income is coming in because I've set myself up, whether it's money from the market coming in. Maybe you have like um, a business that gives you residual income. Maybe you have a retirement account or a pension or whatever. And so mm. that's what I've been asking myself Um more and more lately, like, how how do you want life to go, Tiffany? Like, I want to spend a lot of time with my family and friends. I take, like, a walk every morning or, like, a two-hour walk. I love that. I used to take about, like, a nap, like an hour nap a day. Um, I was I would say every other day down now. <laughs> but I want a lot of space. Mm-hmm. I actually created this thing that I think would be so helpful to those listening and you, too, so my therapist, I have an amazing, amazing, amazing therapist. And she asked me some years ago, what does my perfect day look like? And I was working so much, I couldn't even wrap my mind. I'm like, what does that even mean? I couldn't wrap my mind around what that was. And then recently over the last few weeks, I started to really, because now that I have space, like what does a perfect day look like? And I said, one of the things on my perfect day is that I purposely move my body because I just love to walk or, you know, like I'm not really a gym person, but I like to jump rope. So I'm like, okay, you purposely moved your body. Ideally outside. I saw something beautiful because I just love nature. But it could also be like the face of my niece or my nephew. I saw something beautiful. Another thing I said is that I love teaching, that I shared something, helped someone or taught someone today. 
and that's under like kind of like the same umbrella, that I said I loved you and I heard someone told me that they loved me. You know? And so like, you know, you call me your mom, hey mommy, the day we talking, I was like, okay, love you, bye. You know? And so and that was another one too, was that I talked to someone that I cared about today. Almost every day I talked to maybe three or four people, whether it's my friends or family, you know. And so I started to add up these like amazing things. Oh, I ate something delicious that was also good for my body. Mm. You know? Because it's like, why does everything have like I want to taste good food, but not feel like crap after. Yep. And so I just had all these things like um sunshine, oh, a big belly laugh every day. <laughs> you know? And so like, but you know, like the ones that just come and you're just like hit, like on the phone with your best friend and because yep. you know each other so well, she said something and then you're like literally crying tears of, yep. so I'm like, I want a belly laugh, you know? And um, a friend of mine, he did his perfect day and I said, I want to say I love you. He said, no, I want to feel loved mm. every day, you know? And I was like, okay. His too was like, I want to get a hug. He's got a daughter, you know, and she's like 12. So she's like, oh, don't touch me, you know. <laughs> but he was just like, you know, I need hugs, you know. So creating that, I used to not be able to track whether I had a good or bad day. And looking now at my perfect day, I have near perfect days every day. Wow. You know, because I'm like, oh, you went for a walk. You saw that beautiful leaf. Oh, my God, your best friend Linda had you in stitches this morning. You called your mom and she told you that she loved you. You know, like, so all of a sudden the things that things don't mean quite as much because the perfect day is not about everything went according to plan. It was about these core things that make your life really worth living happened. You know, an, another component of my perfect day that I'm just thinking about it is I want to have time that's not allotted to anyone or anything. You know, like, oh, it's not like, oh, you know, I want at least an hour or two where I don't have to answer emails. I don't have to do this. I don't, there's no have to. Like, there's a time allotted for just peace. You know, like looking out the window, reading a book, listening to a podcast where I'm not in the back of my mind being like, and then I got to, and just some time that is not allotted to anyone or anything other than just chilling out. And when I tell you, like, I have slept better as a result of doing this perfect day. I have one of those um, sleep number beds. And it used to be like, you're at 40 out of 100. Like the quality <laughs> of sleep, they're like, you basically flip flop all night. That's just stress. Yeah. And now I'm averaging like 79, 80. I'm like, woohoo, <laughs> because I'm relaxed. You know, I'm at peace. I'm not overworking and overwhelming. Cause it's like, what to what end? Mm. You know what I mean? For those people on the fast track to success, but to what end? What I really like about what you're saying is I feel like I'm in the stage where I'm just, I'm hustling. Like, no, if I have a goalpost and I reach it, I'll make the goalpost further. And I don't feel satisfied. But I love what you're saying about financial wholeness and feeling like, okay, 100% is enough. I don't need to go for 200%. Was your money philosophy always that way? Or were the events of the past two years, your husband especially passing away, did that impact how you feel about money and wholeness? So like you, I was hustle, 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 hustle. There was a time when like, you know, you did not, everywhere you saw budgets everywhere, every article, every, I did not say no. You know, and there was a time I actually enjoyed it, you know, but then I just was, I gotten really tired and overworked and overwhelmed, but I still was like, well, I haven't reached my goal yet, but I didn't really have a goal. The goal was more. Mm. So it's like, oh, what's your goal? More. So how do you know when you get more? You don't. Because when you get more, then there's more to have, you know? That's <laughs> how <laughs> it sounds right now. <laughs> you know? And so, but my husband was never like that. His philosophy, mine was more, his was enough. And if I'm being candid, I used to be like, there's, there's more to have in life. Why don't you want more? 
And his thing was always, as long as you're okay and baby girl's okay, I'm okay. I would always ask him, I'm like, oh, you don't want to do this? He's like, Tiffany, if you good, she good, I'm good. That's what he would say. And I'm like, well, I'm not good because I want more. (laughs) And then when he passed away, it like shattered everything to the ground. Because like what actually mattered? And I remember distinctly thinking, because with an aneurysm where he had had, he called me like on a Monday, was like, I have this terrible headache. I'm going to leave work. I'm going to go to the hospital. And everybody who knew my husband was like a hypochondriac. I was like, here you go. That's what I was thinking in my mind, honestly. But then I remember he had had aneurysm surgery six years prior, but it didn't even click that that, you know. And then I was like, okay, I'll meet you there. Got to the hospital. And he was there talking. And he was like, oh, my head is hurting so bad. He was in the emergency room. But in my mind, I was thinking, okay. And even if that's what this is, I started to realize maybe this is another aneurysm, but we've been here before. You know, and I remember thinking to myself, I was already preparing. He's going to come home. You know, he's going to be a pain in my behind because he's such a big baby. But we've been here before, and he's talking. You know, even the doctor came over and was like, you're in better shape than me, you know? Like, because with aneurysms, it's kind of like you have it, and then that's it. But so if you're still talking, you're still, it had not burst. It just was, like, painful, and it caused a really bad headache. So they did the surgery. They called me. They said everything is fine. But then it it took a, a turn. So by the time I got to the hospital, he wasn't conscious. And I was like, wait, he's not conscious. And they raced him back for a second surgery. And things just went from like bad to worse. And I remember when I was standing by him thinking to myself, when they told us basically that he wasn't going to make it, I just remember thinking, in this moment, nothing's important. Nothing. It's just literally, I just thought to myself, connection and love, that's it. Like no budget nista, no money, no magazines, no TV shows, nothing. You know, and I just thought I wanted to hold on to that feeling that like this is what's most important. So it completely changed everything for me. Like after I laid him to rest, I went to Bali for two months because I was just like, you know, like honestly, the business, I was just like, I don't care. Like I had a team. Thankfully, they're great. But I was like, I don't care if it burns to the ground. I can't be here. You know, and so I went to Bali for two months and it was just so peaceful and beautiful. And I had to ask myself, so now what do you do? Because, you know, you make these plans. I mean, you're married. You make these plans. And I just was like, well, now what do I do? And I knew I did not want to go back to the grind for grind's sake. Because to what end? Like literally to what end? And so that's where I've come to this space where I'm just like, it's enough, Tiffany. Like I wrote Kick It With Money. It became a New York Times bestseller. With my new book made whole, you know, of course, they're like, oh, it could be. I don't care. I mean, if it makes it, okay. But Okay, if it doesn't, you know, like, I I don't know. Like, I don't need any more money. So I know I haven't put in this extra effort like I used to to make sure we hit. Do we make enough to pay our bills? And so make sure everybody on my team is well paid and I made enough to pay my bills. And then it means more time with Roman, Amelia, and and Lily, my my niece. Like, I'm telling you, like, I've been, I, I rented a vacation house in the summer and I had all my family and friends come up, you know, at the beach because Amelia was like, we didn't go to the beach this summer. I was like, I'm going to get us a vacation house. Because that's, you know, like, that's the most important. My sister Karen lives in Chicago. And she was just saying, oh, I miss you guys. And I was like, okay, I'm paying for flights for all the sisters and the kids to come visit. Because, I mean, like, that to me, it's like, what is the money for? Yep. I'm just not subscribing to more for more sake. Because you don't know what life has to hold. You know, but I do know in this moment, these are the people that I love. These are the people that I care about. 
And I am fortunate that I get to connect and spend time with them. And I don't want to squander that because Jarrell was here on Monday and gone on Thursday, just like that. Like to come home and still see his shoes, you're just like, but that doesn't make sense. Like your side of the bed is still warm. Your shoes are still here. Your toothbrush is still here. How are you not here? I'm sorry. Sorry. So I don't know what life holds, but I just know that making more money is not... It's not my, making more money, I don't care, you know? Like, to me, it's just the people that I care about. And so the mission that I'm on now is to get people to a place that they can have their finances in a way that allows them to spend time with the people they care about, you yeah. know? Yep. That, not the money for money, but money. So I'm like, okay, I have the ticket to go to Japan and visit my mom. You know, not the money, but like, oh, a million wants to go to the beach. Let's go to the beach. You know what I mean? And when I say my life is so much better now, I make way, when I say way less, like way less. And my life is so much better now. My blood pressure was through the roof at one point. And that's when I was at my peak. I was making $10 million in a year, not take home, but in business. And I was at the worst health. I was like up 30, 40 pounds. My blood pressure was like, dangerously high. And that's when I was making the most amount of money. And now I'm like fitter than I've been in so long. And like, I'm making probably a quarter take home of what I used to make before. And I'm like, but I'm happier than I was like in business, you know, I think because I had such a great marriage that it offset the stress that the business was causing me, you know, because I'm like, how was I even managing? But it was so good at home. Like I had a really great partner so it kind of offset that. But now without him, it's like, I can't have this stress in business and then come home and I have this partner that kind of takes the edge off, you know? And so I have to be the one yeah. to like, to enforce, it's enough, Tiffany, mm -hmm. you know? I don't know, like some people lose their husband in their house. I couldn't navigate like my regular life. I can't imagine also having to navigate how will we pay bills? You know what I mean? How, what will we eat? I can't even imagine that. And so I want that for other people too, the peace of mind that comes with financial wholeness, you know, that like, you know, that if something were to happen, God forbid, that like your family, although they won't be okay because you're here, you know, they will be able to sustain a safe and secure life for themselves, despite you not being here financially. If you had to give three things that everyone needs to do to protect themselves financially, what do you think they are? One, insurance, 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 insurance. So... Like life insurance, yes, obviously we know health insurance, but homeowners insurance, you know, but insurance, especially life insurance, if you have debt that you're going to leave behind that won't be erased with your passing, or if you have children, like you want to have insurance. And the sooner rather than, than later, Jarrell got his insurance policy before he was diagnosed with his first aneurysm. They would have never given him insurance, you know? So if you have a child, your child will get your insurance now. Mm -hmm. That's one. Two... I would say to, for preparation, you have to leave a plan behind, you know, like it doesn't have to be a trust, but like some sort of plan behind, especially like I said, if you have children, but if you have assets, if you're 21, then, you know, but you know, you're 30 something and you have a, a business, you've got bank accounts, you know, you've got um, a home, you know, like because everyone is scrambling when you're not here and it makes it that so Jarrell and I had done 85% of a kind of the estate planning, but that 15% that we didn't do, 
I mean, when it comes to money, a lot of people become different people. And people told me that. I was like, no, 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 no. That 15% almost broke us up, you know? <laughs> and so thankfully, you know, we worked through it. But like, so having whatever that plan is, whether it's your will, what do you want to happen, you know, with your things? Like I had to be like, if I'm not here, what happens to the budget needs to sell it? You know, if I'm not here, what happens? Because I don't want them to be like, no, she said this. No, she said, you know, and the last thing is it's not financial. Well, I I would say there's two last things. One, having all of your financial paperwork. And like I, I went out and bought like a fireproof bag that's also waterproof. And just every bank account, every... Because thankfully, like Jarrell always used my computer when he was logging in. So I I knew where everything was. You know what I mean? Like I didn't have to like, I was able to like find, and because we'd worked with Anjali, she had a list of all of our things, you know? And I knew all his passwords. Someone should know your cell phone password and your email password because those are the keys to everything. Mm -hmm. And last but not least, take as many candid videos and photos of your loved ones like Jarrell taught me that because he said he his mother passed away when he was in his 20s. And he's like, I barely have any pictures and no video of her. What would I get to like hear her voice, you know? And so thankfully, because of that, I mean, in his phone, I mean, he was like a secret vlogger, you know? Like, we, I wouldn't know. We'd be in the kitchen, like maybe Alyssa and I talking. He's like, look at them. Neither one of them knows how to cook, but they're in the kitchen. You know, so he had all these videos on his phone of himself, of us, and... And what I did was every time someone came to the hospital to visit him, especially if you use Google Photos, you can search their phone for, for a face and say, add this to this joint photo album. So I have over 4,000 videos, pictures, pictures I'd never seen before when he was a kid and older. And so at any moment, I can hear him say, I love you. I can hear him laugh. I can hear him, like, you know, so that was is the most precious thing. Like any moment. And just like to see like... There's just so many amazing pictures. So I'm not at a lack for, like, I'm not someone who's going to say, like, you know, I can't see him again or I can't hear him again. And so I tell people, like, take, it's not about sharing on social media. Like, just take candid pictures and videos and have one of those free, you know, like, if you have an iPhone, I guess it's like iPhotos or whatever. But if you don't, Google has a free photo. Like, you get, like, Google Photos, literally. If you have a, a Gmail account and it's on your phone, it can back up all your pictures on your phone, no matter how many times you get a new phone to that, like, Google photo account, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, but it was, the, it was, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I just go in there when I'm feeling sad just to see a video or a picture or hear him laugh or, or watch him dance. And I'm fortunate because he had an identical twin brother, Terrell, that I met the same time as I met him. And so people always ask me, like, is it weird? And I'm like, no, because I met Terrell and Jarrell at the same time. So when you know twins, they don't look alike to you anymore. And so although they look alike, they don't look alike. But I now, I don't have to wonder, well, what would Jarrell look like at 50? I told that to Terrell, you know, because I was like, I get to see you because he's like, he's my brother, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, what would he look like, you know, like, and every once in a while, it'll be like a glimpse, like Terrell will laugh in a certain way or say something and I'll see Jarrell for like an instant. And to me, that's such a blessing, you know? Like, it doesn't feel, it doesn't make me sad. Certainly like wistful, like, oh, wow, he's really not here. But I get to see him in 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 Alyssa. I get to see him in his twin. And so like, you know, I feel like of the worst case scenario, I'm living the best case of worst case scenario, I guess you could say. And that's large in large part because of the way I we manage our finances. You know, the best case of a worst case scenario. And I do believe that one day, you know, like you join your loved ones again, you know? 
And so I just feel like in this moment, we're all here, but one day you're not here. And I think that like, there's something on the other side. I don't know. And, you know, you join your loved ones. Again, I, when, when Gerald passed away, I, I watched a lot of um, near-death experience videos. They gave me a lot of comfort. It sounds really weird, but people who like passed away, like, you know, for five minutes on the operating table. And they'll tell the same story over and over that like, you know, like their mom who passed away when they were nine came to, came to like get them. And like, like, you know, you either can cross over to the other side or stay here. And so like that that is a common like component to the near-death experience that you get greeted by the people that passed on before you, you know? I thought about that like a lot. Like when I was standing with Jerron, knowing he wasn't going to make it, I asked him, you know, his mom, like, because I know how much he missed her. <laughs> she would come and... So <sighs> life really is really short. It really is. And it just is. Every time I go to, like, his gravesite, it's a historic cemetery, and I see, like, headstones from, like, 1779. And I think to myself, 200 years ago, someone was here grieving, too. 100 years ago, someone was, like, like, what I'm feeling, grief is, like, the most uncommon common thing. You know what I mean? Like, Everybody, someone passes, everybody passes away eventually, you know, but it feels like, yeah, but not my people, you know, but it gives me, I guess, comfort to know that, like, it's not, this is something that happens for everyone, you know, and like, what can you do to minimize that? But when I go to his gravesite and I see these headstones, it makes me realize just how short of a time period we have here and how will you spend it? Overworking and overwhelming to prove to what, to whom? Especially when you have enough. Will you spend it leaning into your family and friends and loved ones? Or will you spend it like making another million dollars or 50000 that you don't need? How will you actually spend it? You know, because in 200 years, it will be your headstone that someone's looking at who doesn't even know you. And I'm just like, I'm just determined to spend it to the best of my ability. Spend it like with like in the way that means the most, you know? Yeah, just because life is so short. I don't know like what's going to happen. But I do know I'm here now. I've never been able to talk about this on the podcast, but, and I'll attempt, but I'm not sure I'll get through it. But the reason I'm, I'm here and have, uh, you're honestly, you're so brave for, for being so vulnerable the way you have this podcast. I really appreciate that. It's not easy to talk about these hard things. And I think I, I'm like, I'm very bad at talking about my emotions, but no, my, my epiphany, my pivotal life moment was when I was a corporate lawyer, I made a decision to, my grandpa was really, really sick. And I'm, my boss basically said, oh, you know, you need to keep working. You can't go to the hospital to see him. And because of that, I missed out on some of the last moments with my grandpa. And I think this desire to just work, work, work and make other people proud and make money and be in these prestigious jobs, at what cost? And when I look back at the decision, I, I mean, I feel disappointed in myself. And I feel like there is just too much emphasis on making money and being in a prestigious job. For what, though? At what expense? And the thing with life is it is so fragile. You don't know when the end is. But regret is something that you'll have to deal with forever. And... 
for me, that was it. When my grandpa passed away, I said, I'm never going to do this again. I'm quitting my job. I'm going to find a way where I can impact more people, but I can also have control over my time. I don't want anyone to ever tell me again that I can't go spend time with a loved one. And I remember my boss, these were really painful words, but when I asked for this time off and he said, no, he he said these 10 words. He said, what do you think we pay you so much for? And it was, the implication there was like, we pay you so much that you don't take time off. Like when a deal needs to get done, a deal needs to get done. And yeah, that's, that's why I quit. That's why I quit being a corporate lawyer because I just, I couldn't do it anymore. Do you think maybe you're recreating that environment for yourself though? That's a deep question. I think, yes, I'm overworking now, but the impact that I have now, I'm helping real people. So it feels like if I if I take a step back, I won't be able to help as many people. Mm. When I look at the law firm, I was helping big corporations. The moment I left the law firm, they replaced me with the next bright-eyed law student. Yeah. So this is what Dr. Green, my—I'm not a therapist, obviously. Whenever I—because I felt the same, like, I don't want to take a step back. There's so many people I'm helping. And she said, how many years of your life do you owe them? And I was like, What? She was like, you know, you're worried about your employees, the people you're serving. So let me know now so we can start mapping out how many years of your life do you owe them? And I was like, because she's like, that's basically what you're saying. That like, she's like, I'm all for doing good work, you know, but in a way that doesn't take away from your own health and happiness. Mm -hmm. Because what you're saying is that like, I, in an effort to help other people, I don't I don't get to be happy too or I don't get to have feel like okay you know what I mean like so I'm saying like I will sacrifice and martyr myself to make sure everybody else is okay so she was like that's basically you giving them years of your life so how many years do you think 10 years 20 and I was just like I don't I don't want to live like that and she was just like you know so it doesn't mean that you won't be of service it just means you get to decide whenever you're ready or whatever that looks like that it service and serving doesn't have to look like overwork and overwhelm. It doesn't. It doesn't. You know what I mean? Like you will, just because of the nature of who you are, you will still be impactful. But you also get to enjoy too, you know? And I could tell, that's why I could tell because you have such a giving heart, I know. Because it's like, what I just want to, it's like, yes, but it's like you're trying to create this beautiful thing for people. But you know, you also get to eat at that same dinner table. You're like in the kitchen cooking, everybody's eating, everybody's happy. And you're like, I haven't had one bite. It's like, no, you get to sit down and eat too. So that same service and giving and and what you're doing for everyone else, you also get to enjoy that too. You know, so don't forget that like Erica deserves and you, I hope that you give yourself grace and space because your boss was terrible, you know? And like, I don't know that I would have made a different choice either, you know? You were young and... You know, and so now you know that that's not going to, like, happen, at least in that way. But it's very easy for us to recreate, you know, with our own justification of, like, you know, I'm doing this good work, so that means it's okay. The work is enough. I actually don't have to be okay. You know, but that's actually not true. You you can do the work and be okay. The work might look different. It might look, like, not as busy. It might not look as, quote-unquote, prestigious, but... You know, you get to be okay too, Erica. You do. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love this so much. 
I'm very grateful for you for being so vulnerable and inspiring and everything that you are. Well, thank you for having me on because I I know like you're this is your baby, you know, so I don't take it lightly to be invited to be here. So No, it's the, it's the honor. <laughs> I'm so honored. We have a closing tradition. Okay. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Tiffany Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away saying, Tiffany taught me this? Tiffany taught me to understand what enough really looks like. Thank you so much. No, you're welcome. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.